Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the promises of your word. Even the promises in your word that tell us what your word does. Uh, that it is a light to us. That it is um, not only the way that you communicate to us, but the way that we are transformed by the goodness of your grace. So we pray that you would do your work, Holy Spirit, in us this morning. That you would use your word to pierce us through, to show us the ways that we are no different than the people of Israel. These people that we read about who lived thousands of years ago and endured such hardship and also committed such heinous sin. We also hope that today you would help us to see that you have been working for generations. In the same way that you worked long ago, you are still at work today. So would you open our eyes today to see our hero, our warrior, our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask in his strong name. Amen. All right, so we're working our way through the book of Judges. And this morning we do have a lot of ground to cover. And each week as we get into this, you're going to see that we are looking at big chunks of this book together. And each week we'll kind of zero in on maybe a, a focused part of those big chunks in order to really tell the story as best that we can. This morning we're looking at two whole chapters of the book of Judges, Judges 4 and 5. And what makes them unique, not only the book of Judges, but in the Old Testament, the Bible itself, is chapter 4 is narrative. It, it's a story, a story about Deborah, one of the judges, and about a military leader named Barak. Judges chapter 5 is poetry. It's a song, a hymn of praise that Deborah and Barak offered after God delivered them. So this morning we're really going to look more at the narrative, at the story. We'll briefly touch base uh, on the actual hymn. But I would encourage you this week, as you look ahead at Judges 6 and anticipate what we're going to talk about next week, I would encourage you to really take the time to really maybe soak in Judges chapter 5, especially after we talk about it today. Because as, as we talk about the story behind the song, the song will make a lot more sense to you. And I would encourage you even perhaps to use it in your own personal devotions and ask the question, how have you seen the deliverance of God in your own life? But before we get there, this is where I want to start. How do you see God? How do you view him? What are the great themes of his character that have stood out to you? Whether you're a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or perhaps some of you this morning, if you are on the fringe, you are still asking questions about God. Who is God to you? And what assumptions have you made about him? Some people see God as a father, and for that reason, actually, they don't like God very much. Some people see God as a friend, if you've been around me for very long, you've heard how that's probably the hardest one for me to grapple with, that I would actually see God as my friend. Some of you see God as a king. But this morning, what I want to talk to you about is one of the great themes of the Old Testament, and a theme that's often lost on us as New Testament Christians. But it's a common theme, a way to see God not as a father, a friend, or a king, and he is all those things. But this morning, I want to talk about God as a warrior one of the great themes that you see in the Old Testament. Now I would argue it's really one of the great themes of the Bible 
that has influenced so many other stories that you and I have come to know and love. Several years ago in a sermon, I mentioned a book that I read in college. Maybe some of you read this book. It's called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Have you read it? Why not? It's a book about comparative mythology. None of you read that? So it's a book about comparative mythology, and, and the reason why it's such an interesting book is uh, the author, Joseph Campbell, essentially did research into all of the major myths and stories throughout human history, and what he found is they're all essentially the same. They have the same basic story arc, the same basic idea, that there is a person or a group of people who are in need of help or rescue, and a hero comes to their rescue to save the day. As you think about that, you're like, why do you need an entire book to, to talk about that? Like, that's the most obvious thing in the world. Think about any of your favorite books or your favorite movies, and think about the basic storyline. Somehow there's going to be a person or some people who need help or rescue. There's going to be someone or a group of people who are the hero, a warrior, who's come to their help and to their aid. What I think is profound about the book is not, well, there's this phenomenon where basically all these stories are the same. I think what's interesting about the book is the question of why. Why are all these stories the same? What is it in us that loves a good hero story? For us as men this morning, what is it in us that loves a good war movie? The idea of a warrior coming to our rescue. Well, I think because deep down, all of these stories are drawing from the story, the story of humanity. The story of not a human hero, but God as our warrior who has come to our rescue. And you see this theme throughout the book of Judges. You see it all over the Bible. Let me give you just a few examples. This is Psalm 24, verse 8. The psalmist asks, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. You think of God that way. That he is strong and that he is not only mighty, but he's mighty in battle. Again, for us, particularly uh, in the younger that you are, the more we are removed from the everyday reality of war for ourselves, we see it on TV, but the thought of God being strong in our battles, not just metaphorically, but literally, that's something that the people of Israel knew all too well. Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. Now listen to this. The Lord is a man of war. Some of your translations say warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And again, Revelation 19, verse 11. John's vision of Jesus when he comes again. Listen to what he describes. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold... A white horse. And the one sitting on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. The Lord is a warrior. But what I want you to see this morning is not only is he a warrior, he is our warrior. And that is one of the great themes of the Bible, but it is the theme of judges. Because what you're, what you're beginning to see, as David even talked about last week, is this cycle being enacted out of sin and slavery and deliverance with each judge coming to rule over Israel. 
we might be tempted to see that particular judge as the one who delivered the people. But what we're really going to see is behind all of it is that God is the one who's at work. God is our warrior. And we see that so poignantly in our story today, the story of Deborah and Barak. So I want you to focus on three things this morning before we go to our groups. And the first is this. I want you to know that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. So I want you to look at Judges 4, verse 1. Judges 4, verse 1, we're going to see the cycle of Judges continue. I talked about this cycle a couple weeks ago, this idea of sin to slavery to deliverance and hit repeat. We looked last week when David taught about how this cycle was being enacted through two particular judges, and now we're talking about Deborah. And I want you to notice how Judges 4, verse 1 begins. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the cycle continues. The people of Israel, notice the word again. <laughs> Here we are again. It's deja vu. Spiritual deja vu. Here we are again. The people of Israel again are doing evil with sight in the Lord. We, not a lot is being described here to describe what that evil is, but in the context of Judges, we know what that evil is. They had allowed their culture to seep into them. They were worshiping false gods. They failed to tear down the altars of religion and the culture around them, and they had made compromises. Are you and I no different? You and I know different today. They'd done evil was the side of the Lord. Notice what it says, after Ehud died. And this pattern that we looked at last week is that after each judge dies, they go right back to where they came from. There's a period of peace and prosperity and shalom when that judge is ruling over Israel. And then when that judge dies, the history the story, the deliverance, the devotion to God dies with him. That's exactly what we see here. He who dies, the people go right back to their sin. Verse 2, the cycle continues. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who raised an hazer. So what did God do? We're going to see this cycle over and over and over again to discipline them and draw them back to them himself, he gave them over to the culture. He gave them over to the surrounding enemies. He gave them over to their idols and these altars that they were bowing down on, and he sold them into the hand of the pagan Canaanite king. And so now they are oppressed. Sin has given into slavery. And that is the cycle, not only of judges, but it is the cycle of our lives. Whatever sin that you are most prone to, I want you to begin to think of it not just as this um, finite act, right? This, this decision, this one decision, a one-off thing. But I want you to see the way that our sin entangles us. It's the language that the Bible uses, not only Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. The way that Jesus said that we are slaves to sin. Apostle Paul, talking about the way that sin grabs hold of our hearts, sin always gives rise to slavery. That's what we see here. As the people sinned, God gave them over and sold them into the hand of Jabin. 
continues in verse 2, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. For 20 long years, the people of Israel were oppressed, not only by King Jabin, but by his chief general, Sisera, and notice the description, he has 900 chariots. In those days, a chariot was the uh, cutting edge technology for war. And he had 900 of them. People of Israel had zero. <laughs> they are outmatched, right? Uh, they feel pressed in on every side. They are oppressed for 20 years. So what does God do? to discipline for their sin. He hands them over to their sin and to their surrounding culture. And then in verse 4, he sends the next judge. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. A few things I want you to notice. We'll talk about a little bit of this today. First thing I want you to notice is, what's the name of the judge? Deborah. What kind of name is that? That's a woman. God chose a woman to be a judge. Not only that, but she's not only a judge, what is she? She's a prophetess. I know what you're thinking. I thought prophetesses were like in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, what is that? Well, there's actually three prophetesses in the Old Testament. She's one of three women who were called to the work of prophecy. At the end, we'll talk about the way that God works and the way that he tends to blow our categories. But for now, I want you to pay attention that God has chosen a woman to not only be a judge, but a prophet. And that's how she carried out her judgment. So many of the others, in fact, almost every other judge in the book of Judges is also a military leader, but not Deborah. She was really a civil authority. Someone who came and judged with wisdom and through the ministry of prophecy by speaking on behalf of the Lord. She was not a military leader herself. Notice verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she's not coming with a sword in her fist. She's not wearing armor. She's not a military leader. What does she do? She sits. She sits in judgment underneath a tree, and people come to her, and she brings the wisdom of God. So she's not the military leader, then who is? Who will God send to rescue his people from the clutches of Sisera and Jabin? Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you in the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. All right, so notice again how Deborah is leading her people. She's not the military leader. She sends for a military leader, a military leader named Barak. 
And as she sends to him, notice how she gives him orders. Are they her orders? Is this her wisdom? No, she's giving him orders from God himself. She's giving him the wisdom of the Lord. She's telling him, this is what God has commanded you to do. He's told you to go, take 10,000 troops. How are you going to combat 900 chariots? Outnumber them with 10,000 troops. Take 10,000 troops. Not only that, notice what God says, verse 7, I will draw out Sisera. God is the one who's going to draw out Sisera so that he would be met in the river Kishon with his chariots and troops. And notice what God says. What promise does he make, Barak? I will give him into your hand. So again, what I want you to see is the way that God is at work in raising up Deborah to serve on his behalf and giving direct orders to a military leader to deliver his people. Over and over and over again, we see this cycle throughout the book of Judges. What makes this particular story so unique is the way that it was all carried out. And I think the reason is because God wants us to see who is the true hero of the story. We are tempted to look to people, to human beings, to be our rescue, to be our hero. And the story of the Bible, the story of Judges, the story of Judges chapter 4 is that God is the warrior. He is the one who's come for our rescue. Barak responds to Deborah's, um, not Deborah's command, God's command through Deborah in verse 8. And this is what he says. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So notice this great military leader gives her an ultimatum. I'm only going to go into battle if you go with me. Now there's two ways to look at this response of Barak. One is positive, one is negative. One is uh, pessimistic towards Barak and one is giving him the benefit of the doubt. So one says, well, look, Barak is making an ultimatum. He's not a very faithful guy. He's a coward. Like, you're only going to go into battle if Deborah goes with you? Come on, man. Right? That's one view. The other view is he actually is a faithful guy. It's the complete opposite. And that he recognizes who Deborah is speaking for. It's not Deborah who's giving him the order. It's God himself. And so he wants Deborah not because of who she is, but who God is and who she speaks for. He wants Deborah to go with him so he can continue to have wisdom. I tend to favor the latter view. I'll tell you more why in just a little bit. But either way, what we see is what Barak wants, he wants her to come with him. Verse 9, and she said, I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Okay, are you with me still? Because this is going to be super important in just a second. So God, through Deborah, has called Barak to raise up 10,000 to go fight the army of Sisera. God has made a promise, I will deliver them into your hand. And now, what is God saying through Deborah? You're going to go fight this battle, Barak. You're going to lead an army of 10,000. I'm going to deliver this army, your enemies, into your hand. But guess what? You're not getting the glory. You won't get the glory. 
You, Barak, are going to lead an army to liberate the people of God, but you won't get the glory. Why? Because, notice what he says, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So here's a question I want you to begin to ask in the background. Who is getting the glory in this story? If it's not Barak, who's the one who's going to get the glory? Is it Deborah? Is it some other woman? Who is the one getting the glory? Again, I want you to remember the Lord is a warrior. Second, I want you to know as our warrior that the Lord goes before us. The Lord goes before us. Now I want you to go to verse 12. Skip ahead just a little bit there in your sheet. When Sisera, so again, this is the general of Jabin. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men that were with him. They went to the river Kishon, and Deborah said, verse 14, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now what you cannot see on your sheets in the English translation of Judges chapter 4 is how intricately put together this chapter is. Some Hebrew scholars have said this is a work of art in storytelling. It is a chiasm, a chiastic structure. If you've been around studying the Bible, maybe you've heard that before if you've ever studied the Old Testament. It was a common Hebrew device in order to tell a story. All a chiastic structure is, is telling a story in parallel, where the first part of the story is parallel to the last part of the story. The second part of the story is parallel to the second to the last part of the story, and you keep going on until all of that meets in the middle. You with me? That's what you're seeing in Judges chapter 4. Verse 14 is the central verse of this chiasm. Parallel upon parallel, all centering on that central verse, and stories were told in this way so that people would get the point. What's the main point of the story? What is the story really trying to tell us? What central verse is trying to communicate a central message? We see that in verse 14. I want you to hear it again. Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Two things I want you to notice about this central message. First, the Lord is the one who has given Sisera into the hand of Barak. The Lord. He is the one who's at work in the background the entire time. But the second thing I want you to know is how. Notice the language that's used. Does not the Lord go out before you? I want you to think about that image. Why would it be important that God would go out before you into battle? Why? It's common language that we see throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 1, verse 30. You can just kind of write these down and go back to them if you want later. Listen to Deuteronomy 1, verse 30. The Lord who goes out before you will himself fight for you, just as he did in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Isaiah 52, verse 12, For you will not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you. 
and the God of Israel be your rear God. Okay, so again, why would we want God to go before us into battle? Why? Well, in ancient times, when a king would lead an army into battle, where was the king? Was he on the front line? No, where was he? He was far away. Have you ever seen Braveheart? Where's the king as he is commanding archers to fire their, their arrows? Where's the king? He is high up on a hill, <laughs> overlooking everything, as far away from the action as possible. In ancient times, that was a common practice. The king is nowhere near the action. The king is giving orders and commands, and he's sending others into harm's way. Who would the king put on the front line? How important of troops would they put? The Irish, that's right, good. We're still in Braveheart. It's a great movie to watch in parallel to studying the book of Judges. I'm not kidding in just a second. <laughs> yeah, you put the worst of the worst, right? Because you know those on the front lines are the ones who are going to get killed the quickest, particularly at the beginning of the battle. But that's not the kind of king that God is. Where is God in our battles? Is he high up on a hill far away from the action? No. He goes before us. He goes before the front lines. He leads us into battle. He's the one that's always in front. And we see this most poignantly and sending his son Jesus to go before us to the cross. He didn't send the Irish or even us to the cross, even though we deserve it. But God is our warrior. He goes before us. He went before us in battle in the book of Judges. He went before us to the cross to die and to rise again, and one day he will go before us when he rises again, and his resurrection will become ours in Christ. He is the one who goes before us. We see that throughout the Bible, and we see it here. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, <laughs> the mighty Sisera running away. I love these stories. Can you see it? 10,000 troops from Israel surrounding the chariots. God delivering the enemies into Israel's hand. And now Sisera, this mighty general, is running away. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and the army uh, to Herosheth Hagayim. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. And notice what it says, not a man was left. This was not just a victory, it was a decisive victory. God, through Barak, defeated the enemies of Israel. And once again, they were delivered from oppression and slavery. Depression and slavery that they had gotten themselves into because of their own sin. Again, as we think of the cycle of judges, I don't want you to just hear that we, like a dog returning to its vomit, just sin over and over again. That's true. But I also want you to see that over and over and over again, we see the mercy and grace of God. That he over and over and over again would deliver his people and rescue them. 
because that is what God does with us. The third and final thing before you go to your groups, I want you to know in the end, the Lord wins. The Lord wins. He is the one who wins. Look at this, verse 17. We'll tell this last part of the story as quickly as we can, but it's the best part. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hever the Kenite. And there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazer and the house of Heber the Kenite. Okay, so I don't have a ton of time here, but what you need to know is that the Kenites come from Moses' father-in-law. They were connected to Israel, but here we see they're actually connected to Israel's enemies. They too had compromised. They too had assimilated into the surrounding culture. And there was kind of a truce between the leader of the Kenites and uh, Jabin and Sisera, the leader of the Canaanites. So here's Sisera. He is fleeing on foot. He no longer has a chariot, and he's trying to hide. Where does he go? Into the tent of the wife of the leader of the Kenites. That's where he's going. Okay? Now, what you probably can't see is just culturally just how backwards this is. I mean, ordinarily, he wouldn't go to the wife. He would go to the husband, right? He would, he would be going looking for, for help, military help. But no, he goes to the wife. Notice what happens next. Verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, and turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. All right? Notice just how um, humiliating this is so far. He goes to the tent of a woman, and now she's like, come in, let me put a blanket, you must be cold, <laughs> right? Let me put a blanket around you. This great warlord humbled. He said to her, verse 19, please give me a little water to drink from thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave it to him. Verse 20, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. <laughs> so now again, this great warrior, he's got a blanket on. He's come to this woman and he's saying, would you please stand at the door and lie for me? <laughs> if anybody's asking where I am, we tell them I'm not here. And then notice what happens. Verse 21. And so Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. What did she do? Well, in those days... Who made tents for a nomadic people? Whose job was it in the family to be the one to put up the tent? It was the women. And she was apparently pretty good with a tent peg. And she drove it into his temple and assassinated him. And then the best part of the story, I think, is in verse 22. And now here comes Barak. He's been on the chase Chasing down Sisera, he's going to get the very last man, right? He chases him all the way to the tent. Verse 22, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael went out to meet him and said, come and I will show you the man you're seeking. Come. She does exactly the opposite of what obviously Sisera asked her to do. Come. But then here's Barak. He opens the tent and what does he find? He went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. All right, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think there's a theme that we are beginning to see in this chapter. That's, again, the theme of Judges, and I think the theme of the Bible. 
that the Lord is our warrior and he wins. Again, I asked you, who gets the glory? If Barak's not getting the glory, who gets the glory? Well, some could argue it wasn't Barak, it's Jael. Jael's the one who gets the glory. After all, Deborah said to, to Barak, look, you're not gonna get the glory. I, I'm gonna turn Sisera over to a woman. And that woman is Jael. But you see, I think the reason why God did it this way is to show us that in the end, he is the one who always gets the glory because he wins. He uses any means and any people in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And so for centuries, people have looked back on this story and they've asked a ton of questions, maybe even questions that you're asking now. Questions like, well, if God chose a woman like Deborah to be the judge, then how do we think of women in leadership? I think it's a fair question, but it's not the right question. Because again, as we read, particularly the Old Testament, we're reading the story of how it happened, not how it should have happened, or how it should happen today, or what we should do or shouldn't do. No, it's the story, the true story of how it happened. And the Old Testament doesn't shy away from crazy things happening. And so conservatives, We'll look at this passage, and they'll say, well, you know, look, you can't really think of it this way. Uh, really, the story of Deborah is the story of the failure of male leadership. And because males failed to lead, God put in Deborah. But I don't think that's what we see here. God chose Deborah to be a prophetess and a judge and used her in mighty ways. Liberals will look at this and say, look, God chose Deborah. It proves that women should be in all kinds of leadership. But again, that's not what's going on here. It's not telling us what to do. It's telling us how God did it. A second question, like the first, is what do we do with violence in the Bible? Particularly in the Old Testament. Maybe some of you this morning struggle with that. Just how violent the Old Testament is, and as we get through the book of Judges, it is violent. In the end, how did Sisera, the general of the army, die? He was assassinated. He didn't die in battle. He was assassinated. How was he assassinated? Through lying, through coercion. Jael lured him in with hospitality and then drove a tent peg into his forehead while he slept. What do we do with violence in the Bible? Again, the Bible doesn't shy away from the violence of humanity. Instead, it shows us how God uses it for his sovereign purposes. And the greatest act of violence the world's ever known is when crucified an innocent man on a cross who would die there for you and for me, the one who is our warrior, the one who is the true judge, and the one who in the end, even in death on a cross, got the glory once and for all. So why don't you see what's going on here is that God is showing us he's in charge. He is our warrior. He goes before us into battle. And in the end, he will win and he always gets the glory. So the question that that leaves for you and I is, how do you see God at work today? Do you see him as your warrior going before you into battle? Or are you striving, still trying to fight battles on your own? In the end, we have a promise that he wins, that he will get the glory once and for all. Let me pray for you and send you to your groups. Lord, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you for stories like Judges chapter 4. It's an incredible story. A story that in so many ways leaves us still with questions, but a story that helps us to see that you are the God behind the story. So I pray for my brothers here as they discuss in their groups that you would help them to see the way that you are our warrior. And that, Lord, we would cling to you. We would see you not only in the past, but help us to see your work in our present and help us to believe the promises of your deliverance in our future. That not only have you been a warrior for your people, you are a warrior even still. And that one day you will send Jesus Christ to come on a white horse whose name will be faithful and true to come and defeat our enemy of sin and death once and for all. Until that day comes, I pray that you would help us as men not fight this battle on our own, but follow you, God, as our warrior into every battle so that we might find true victory over sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Enjoy your groups. Again, if you do not have a group, come see me or Elaine. Take some time to read Judges chapter 5 this week.